This is VOCM News Talk. Call 709-273-5211 or 1-888-590-8626. The views and opinions of this program are not necessarily those of this station. Here's VOCM News Talk host Linda Swain. Well, good afternoon, everyone. Linda Swain in with you this afternoon. Uh, hello, everybody. Uh, we got a, we're going to start the show this afternoon with a little bit of breaking news. If you've been following the courts as of late, do you know that today is the day when uh, Craig Pope uh, was uh, supposed to be sentenced. Well, VOCM uh, news reporter Brian Callahan is just out of the court as we speak, and he joins me now on the line. Hello, Brian. Hi, Linda. How are you? Good. So you're just out of the courtroom. Tell us what happened with Craig Pope today. Well, he's going to have to serve 11 years in prison uh, before he's eligible for any kind of parole. So that's the decision today. He had been convicted of second-degree murder back in December, and uh, that comes with an automatic life sentence. So for the rest of his life, he will be under some form of supervision by the parole board, whether that's, um, you know, eventually, who knows, some kind of form of release. Uh, But either way, he'll always be under conditions for the rest of his life. That comes with uh, second-degree and first-degree, but second-degree as well. This is the second time he's been convicted. It's um, the second time around on this trial. Uh, but it just concluded, uh, emotional to say the least, um, certainly his mom broke down uh, really dramatically at the very end when he was taken into custody and uh, taken out of the courtroom for the last time So, uh, for this matter. Uh, so, um, yeah, so uh, 11 years, it'll be a federal institution. We don't know where that is yet. And again, no chance pro for the first 11 years. So um, he's got close to that to serve. He hasn't done a lot of time in custody uh, awaiting trial here. So... Uh, there won't be a lot of credit for time already served. And this is very close to what the Crown had been seeking, is it not? Yes. So it also, I mentioned the life sentence. So uh, it uh, comes with a minimum of 10 years, Linda. So um, at worst, at, you know, at, at the best he was going to do was 10 years. So 10 was the minimum. That's what the defense, his lawyer, Mark Rushy, was looking for. Uh, that's the bottom. Uh, you know, that's as low as you can go. The max is 25. So second-degree murder, you could... Uh, you know, depending on your behavior, your antecedents, your aggravating factors, everything that goes with it, because it's not just the crime, of course. Every case is different. Um, but, uh, you know, at 25 is the max for second degree. is very rare because it's always under review. Um, and, you know, so at some point you're expected to probably make some progress, enough at least to have some kind of release. But, uh, yes, the defense is looking for 10. The Crown was looking for 12. And 12 was actually the result of the first murder trial, second degree murder trial that Mr. Pope went to. Uh, which was over, which was you know, order new trial or overturned on appeal. So, uh, yeah. So this is the uh, the result today. The Crown wanted twelve. The defense wanted ten. And uh, Justice Glenn Noll ended up right smack dab in the middle at eleven. So you had a chance to hear the uh, the the sentencing decision. Uh, what were the aggravating factors here? Well, it, it's interesting because you know it, it almost comes across the aggravating would be. Number one, what this has done to the family. Uh, there's no question. The family of Jonathan Collins, who was the victim here, you know, this this was a spontaneous, not planned, you know, this wasn't, you know, a coordinated. This was a spontaneous, anger-filled moment of, uh, of violence, uh, uh, of extreme violence, the judge, extreme violence, the justice called it. And, of course, it doesn't take away from the fact, but aggravating mostly that he left the scene immediately after, that he told the cab driver that they were with that day, after he had uh, stabbed him and he was on the ground to run over him. Go, go, run over him. 
uh, was what he told the cab driver to do. So these kind of things aren't helping your case. Um, you know, that's what kind of gave rise to the extra. You know, there was no way you see some cases like this go second degree murder, go down to manslaughter when it's clear that there wasn't an intent to kill. Well, you know, you're sitting in the back of the cab and you tell the cab driver after stabbing the guy to run over him. That's, uh, that's uh, pretty aggravating. So that would be the key ones. He did, you know, apologize very sincerely, and the judge accepted that it was genuine uh, this time. He didn't do that in the first trial. So there are some of those differences, and these aggravating mitigating factors are everything that the judge looks at. Um, uh, that was his job today. The, the jury found Craig Pope guilty in December. The jo- job for the judge today was to determine how long he serves before he's eligible for parole, and 11 years is it. So uh, what can we expect here on in? Is, is he expected to appeal this as well, or uh, is this it? Oh, that's a great question. So um, his lawyer, Mark Rushi, uh, who you know, I've known for some years, uh, he, normally you know you don't rush the defense after this. If anyone wants to talk, and it was very emotional, both sides, I mean, oh, my God, you know, the family of Jonathan Collins, uh, it was just heart-wrenching all this afternoon. You know, the open, loud crying and wailing it's it's you know until you're in a courtroom and you hear that and everyone is just expected to keep your demeanor but it's hard to ignore when this is happening and the judge is talking about what a you know what a sad loss of life this was for the family but um in any event i caught up with mark Rushy on the sidewalk right after the event uh right after the case was concluded and just had a quick chat with him they haven't decided whether they're going to appeal yet it's always an option this is, uh, you know, the first stage. You could appeal to the Newfoundland Labrador Court of Appeal. And again, as Mr. Snellgrove did, uh, following an unsuccessful run there, he went to the Supreme Court of Canada, which is also still open. So there are avenues still open for Mr. Pope, although, you know, a second trial, uh, the facts are not in dispute. Um, it, it, it's hard to see at this point where the appeal might come from, but it's certainly open to them. And, you know, one last note there, Linda. Yep, it's, uh, it's interesting. You know, when I walked in the courtroom day, it just dawned, I mean, that both the Pope trial and the Snowgrove matter are now concluded <clears throat> criminally for all intents and purposes pending any other appeal by Mr. Pope. And both of them, uh, you know, uh, winding their way through the court process for oh, an yeah. extended period of time. Yeah, in Mr. Pope's case, six and a half years, Jonathan Collins, of course, the victim, I don't want to forget this, I never want to leave him out of the equation because this is, that's the hardest part of this. Uh, six and a half years in that case, and of course, just over nine years in Mr. Snowgrove's case. So, there are reasons for all that, but, uh, you know, and it's a tangly judicial system. But uh, these are, in the end, you know, justice to the parties here today uh, seems to have been done. Appreciate your time uh, this afternoon, Brian. Thank you very much. Anytime, Linda. Already. That's uh, VOCM's Brian Callahan, just out of the uh, Craig Pope uh, sentencing hearing and um, uh, or decision, I should say, not a hearing, is a decision. Eleven years in prison before he has any eligibility for parole. When we come back, the federal government has tabled legislation before Parliament outlining, in broad terms, a new national pharmacare framework. This is News Talk on VOCM. Stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your VOCM. Join Linda Swain weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 p.m. for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you. News Talk on your VOCM. 
And we are back. Well, the federal government has tabled legislation outlining in broad terms a new national pharmacare network. Bill C-64 lays out some of the fundamental principles of the plan, which will provide universal coverage for things like diabetes medications and contraception. Diabetes coverage will include syringes and glucose test strips, while an estimated 9 million Canadians of reproductive age will be able to avail of a range of contraceptive drugs and devices. The National Pharmacare Plan was developed through a deal reached between the governing Liberals and the NDP. Federal Health Minister Mark Holland spoke in Ottawa today. Here's some of what he had to say. You know, when we think of the pandemic and the stresses faced by healthcare systems around the world, it's easy to despair, to believe that uh, the, uh, the strength of our public health system uh, and its best days are behind us. But you know, in that moment in the pandemic, uh, instead was seen a light of what was possible when we all work together, when we focus on collaboration and we focus on solutions rather than on differences, egos, and jurisdiction. And it is exactly that spirit that brings us here together today. And you know, you think about the advancements we're making, having signed uh, agreements now with British Columbia, Alberta, Manitoba, Ontario, Prince Edward Island, Northwest Territories, and Nova Scotia, and every province and territory to come to make historic investments. Um, $200 billion being invested over the next 10 years in our public health care system. But we recognize investing in primary care, investing in ensuring that we have the right workforce and that we stand with the incredible individuals who provide us health care in every corner of this country every day is not enough, that we must cast our eyes upstream. Being upstream is just as important as dealing with the conditions that we're dealing with in the current context. That's why our government took historic action on bulk purchasing to reduce the cost of drugs in Canada by hundreds of millions of dollars. That's why we took action on drugs for rare diseases. And that's certainly why we took action on dental care. And it's most certainly why we are here today. Today in the House of Commons, I was deeply proud to introduce an act respecting pharmacare that lays out the principles essential for a national universal pharmacare in Canada and sets out our plan to provide universal single-payer coverage for a range of contraception and diabetes medications. And someone might rightfully ask, why these two drugs? So let me take them each in turn. Let's start with uh, sexual health. And here I turn to the advocates who've spoken so passionately over the years uh, about how uh, autonomy uh, over one's body, over the ability to have access to the uh, reproductive uh, medicines that you need to control your own sexual health is a matter of fundamental justice. Waking up in a country where every single woman has access to the contraception she needs to control her future is an absolutely critical part of having a just society. This is about health equity. It's also about affordability, about making sure somebody who's asking, uh, can I afford the contraception that I need to be able to control my future, uh, or do I pay for rent or food in a time of global inflation and challenge? It's about giving women control of their own bodies. And folks, it's also about destigmatizing conversations about sexual health. Sexual health is health. We should have the ability to talk about any body part with no shame. And those direct, honest conversations about our sexual health are so essential. Because when we avoid conversations about sexual health, that leads us open to manipulation, to sexual violence, and poor health outcomes. 
There are more than 9 million women of reproductive age in Canada. That's nearly a quarter of the population. Unintended pregnancy can be cause, uh, a cause of a cascade of health and economic impacts, both for individuals and for society. Having safe, reliable birth control is essentially freedom, and it is safety. However, these costs continue to be a barrier. Today, we're taking action to remove that barrier. Next, I'll turn to diabetes. And maybe if I could, I could go to one of the most uh, powerful advocates here in the room today. 12-year-old, uh, Raina. Raina said to me, uh, she was talking about how hard it is to manage diabetes, uh, how much work has to go in and thought every day to managing your condition. And that's a lot for a 12-year-old person to deal with. But Raina reminded us that imagine at 12 years old as you're trying to manage that very difficult disease if you wonder whether or not you can afford medication, if you wonder whether or not you can afford the test, the test strip or the syringe that you need. You got enough to worry about, Raina. You don't need to be worried about cost. And that's one of the reasons why this is so fundamentally important today. You know, when I had an opportunity to talk to Sarah here uh, earlier today, uh, Sarah is uh, doing incredible work in diabetes, as so many are at the Centertown Community Health Centre. Sarah was saying to me, imagine uh, I have clients who, because of money, are reusing syringes. Taking on the danger, the incredible health danger of reusing a syringe because they don't have the money for it. That's not right. That's not the kind of country we should live in. Talking about patients who are making a decision about whether or not they take their diabetes medication or whether or not they go and get the food that they need for their family. And what happens to that person who doesn't take their medication? Right? They wind up potentially with an amputation, with a stroke, with a heart attack. They walk out with potentially kidney problems. That's not just a matter of social justice. Imagine the cost involved in that to our health system. And I don't think that's the kind of country we want to have. And that's fundamentally about what we're talking about today. And here I'll make another point which is that many will talk about how much this costs. I hope we talk about how much it saves. Not just how many lives it saves, but in the British Columbia, Columbia example, and I want to thank Adrian Dix, who was, uh, who, uh, you know, the work that British Columbia does, did to, uh, to lead the way on universal contraception, has demonstrated really that it appears to be saving more in money than it costs. Here's a remarkable situation where we will work with provinces. That's what's remarkable about this. If we think outside of the crisis we're in, we can light a candle to what is possible in our health system. When we make the investments in primary care and health workforce, we so too could be making the investments that are stopping the crisis from ever happening again. And that is uh, Health Minister, Federal Health Minister, uh, Mark Holland on the uh, National Pharmacare Plan, which was tabled before Parliament today. It has yet to be um, uh, accepted, of course, but uh, the, it outlines a very broad, uh, in a very broad way, uh, the plan to cover universally me uh, diabetes medication and contraception. Uh, Claudette, you received a call about a lost item. Yeah, it is a wallet, a lady 
is very concerned because she has very important cards in there. And she said about 20 minutes ago, she really believes it's out on the street um, near Halliday's Meats. Uh, she said she went from Halliday's Meats to No Frills, but she contacted them. They even looked outside and couldn't find it. So she's convinced it's in the vicinity of Halliday's Meats. So a blue wallet. Um, she gave me her last name, which she said is fine to use. It's Martin. And if you have found it, you can call 834-7884. She's very anxious to get her wallet back. If you don't remember that phone number, you can call the OCM and I will give it to you. Okay. Uh, yeah. What a terrible um, Have thing. you ha- had to lose? I lose things all the time. Oh, I've canceled tell me things about it. and then they've turned up. Mm-hmm. But this is, you know, she obviously lost it where she think she lost it right 20 minutes is the time period so um, hopefully she won't have to go through all that what a terrible feeling oh it yeah. is it, yeah. it is it, it is a terrible feeling yeah well hopefully uh, she's reunited with her wallet because uh, there's no worse feeling honest to goodness so um, yeah uh, hopefully somebody picks that up uh, here's what we had to say today and uh, gives her a call or gives us a call and we can uh, hook you guys up um, well, the federal government is providing World Energy GH2 with $128 million boost for its proposed hydrogen de- development on the province's southwest coast. MP Seamus O'Regan was among those who made the announcement in Ottawa yesterday. He made it clear they're pushing forward with the development of hydrogen in this province. Because the world is looking for renewable energy, that is a fact, and the markets are going that way, and the money is going that way. The energy transition is happening. It is happening. Right now, right now, in my province, companies are deciding where to invest, where to build. Lord knows Newfoundland and Labrador has the wind. Uh, And we can produce, through that, the clean hydrogen that the world is now rushing to get. So we are making sure that this industry is given the proper footing that it needs, starting in St. George's Bay, Newfoundland. World Energy GH2 and Export Development Canada, EDC, they've signed an agreement for a $128 million credit facility to support this, this development. It is a project called New Geohonic. The project will build Canada's first commercial green hydrogen ammonia facility. This is huge. It means 1,100 jobs in construction, 100 jobs to operate the facility, and we are projecting another 1,300 jobs indirectly. Several wind farms, one in Port-a-Port, one on the Codroy Valley, are going to produce over 3 gigawatts of clean power to deliver approximately 250,000 tons of hydrogen a year. And it'll be Newfoundlanders and Labradorians who are exporting that hydrogen to the world and taking home those profits. So we're here today because the team at World Energy GH2 is in a hurry. We need to get this project off the ground and signal to the world, signal to the world we are in the green hydrogen game now. That's the urgency that you need to have in this industry. It's why we can't afford to play politics around this. You've heard me out here before. I, I, you know, we're, we got to stay in a global race. We got to pull ahead. We got to be rowing in the same direction. Today is exactly why we need to pass Bill C49 as fast as possible. Investors are watching. We need government backing this industry. We need a strong regulatory framework to attract investment. 
I, I often tell the story, good as you're saying it, but anyway, I'll just never forget being at Stephenville Airport two years ago when we were debating the, val the, 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 the viability of this industry. Could we make hydrogen from wind? Could we export it around the world? And then the German Chancellor's plane landed at Stephenville Airport with the German Chancellor and the CEOs of every major German corporation from Mercedes-Benz to Siemens to say, yeah, you can. Yeah, you can do this. Stephenville can do it. Newfoundland can do it. Canada can do it. Pattern Energy is right now in Argentia. Exploits Valley, right now, renewables, they're in Exploits Valley out of Bowood. With this investment in World Energy GH2 and our recent support for Everwind Fuels Green Hydrogen and Clean Energy Hub in Nova Scotia, we are going to give workers and businesses a head start on hydrogen. So that's MP Seamus O'Regan in Ottawa yesterday. Uh, former Miapakek Band Council Administrative Chief uh, Measle Joe, who earlier this year announced his retirement, recently accepted a position with World Energy GH2 as a strategic advisor. And uh, World Energy GH2 was among a list of companies who bought tables at last night's Liberal Party fundraiser here in St. John's. We're up to news time. This is News Talk on VOCM. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. And we are back. Well, the province's justice minister defending his stance on how government is addressing a rise in serious and violent crime in the Conception Bay North area. Opposition critic Helen Conway Ottenheimer categorized John Hogan's response to crime rates in the region as dismissive and uncaring. Justice Minister John Hogan speaks with VOCM's Richard Duggan. Let's start off with what um, Helen Conway Ottenheimer had to say. Uh, she's described your attitude towards rising crime in the Conception Bay North area as dismissive and uncaring. Um, just to start off, what's your response to, to what she had to say? Yeah, so other than I you know, disagree with those comments, I, I think they're totally inaccurate and, um, and not based on any facts, to be honest with you. Certainly since I've been minister, I can point to a number of things uh, some initiatives that we've taken in the Department of Justice and Public Safety to show that we're taking uh, crime in Newfoundland and Labrador very seriously and take the safety of Newfoundlanders and Labradorians uh, very serious as well. Um, obviously, this story started with um, issues related to the RCMP. Um, in budget 2022, very soon after I became minister, uh, there was an increase in the budget for the RCMP of $17 million, uh, which is a lot of money and the first substantial increase the RCMP had received in their budget for some time. Uh, also look at the RNC budget last year increased as well to uh, increase the number of RNC officers that are available in this province. Uh, heard from communities such as Pasadena on the west coast of this province that look to uh, you know, make sure that the policing was delivered uh, most appropriately, most effectively uh, and in the best way for residents of that part of the province. Uh, in response to that very quickly, the department uh, changed some jurisdictional boundaries, uh, increased the RNC presence in certain areas of the west coast near the Cornerbrook area. Uh, we've also announced a 10-person team. Uh, you know, I think we're a little bit ahead of the rest of the country in here and looking at the best way the, the best way to deliver policing in Newfoundland and Labrador. It's a 10-member team within the Department of Justice that's looking at that, uh, along with a task force that's looking at exactly how policing should be delivered here in a modern way, in a safe way, um, using all technology, resourcing, uh, jurisdictional analysis to make sure that all Newfoundlanders and Labradorians are receiving the best possible policing in Newfoundland and Labrador. So very quickly, you know, I can point to increase in budget of the RCMP, increase in budget to the RNC, 
increase the budget to the Department of Justice and Public Safety to look at policing and to be there for police to hear their concerns. Um, you know, I think it's just incorrect to, for those comments to come from Ms. Conway Ottenheimer about how, um, how I have and how the department has and how this government has viewed policing and crime rates in this province. What's your understanding of the crime rates coming out of Conception Bay North, and, and do you have any concerns with, with how things are unfolding there? So I always have concerns when there's issues raised about crime in the province. I mean, not, you know, not to say that the things that we've done as a government are going to solve all the problems. Crime is changing all the time, uh, which is why I think it was an appropriate time to look at policing in this province and how to address those concerns you know, my understanding is that levels of crime are not increasing in the province or in the country, but the severity levels of uh, the, the crimes that are happening have, has increased. Uh, so certainly when we have conversations with the RCMP, and I want to be very clear that we have a very good relationship with the RCMP and meetings that we've had over the last few years are really focused on vacancy rates uh, for the RCMP. Uh, I'm sure you may not know, but, you know, if you do know that vacancy rates for the RCMP across the country are an issue. Um, One of the things that we did in 2022 was to provide that increase in funding to help uh, increase the complement of RCMP members for the province of Newfoundland and Labrador. At that time, it would have been, you know, over 23 new positions for members of the RCMP in the province. But because it's an issue across the country, we don't control how many people go to depot at the RCMP, how many people graduate, how many new members there are across the country. Of course, Newfoundland and Labrador is going to have vacancy as well. So they haven't been able to uh, fill the backlog of vacancies at this point. But as I said, the meetings that we've had with the RCMP over the last couple of years have focused on their efforts, and they've been telling us what they've been doing to recruit and to retain Newfoundlanders and Labradorians uh, back to Newfoundland to fill the membership vacancy here in the province. So, you know, they've been working on that. They've taken that as a priority. Uh, they've heard government's concerns about the vacancy rates in this province. And certainly, uh, once the vacancy rate has been stabilized uh, and there's more funding that's needed, we're always going to listen to uh, the RCP about that issue. What are you hearing from um, mayors and councillors in the area? And is there anything that can, anything more that can be done just beyond, you know, RCMP staffing to help address some of the very serious concerns that they're bringing forward? So just to be clear on the RCMP staffing as well in that area, there's 14 frontline policing resources in Harbour Grace, 12 in Bay Roberts. Um, this, you know, this is the most accurate information I have right now is that we're only showing one vacancy rate in the Avalon North region. So it is a well-staffed uh, in comparison to other regions in, this province, in the province right now. Um, and again, we always listen to individuals, mayors, municipalities, uh, communities, stakeholders who have concerns with any crime rates. So we do trust the RCMP and the RNC to do the jobs that they do to keep people safe in this province. Uh, I think what we've shown over the last three years is a steady increase in their budgets to both police departments. Um, and certainly, again, always open to listening to them, to meeting with the RNC and the RCMP to discuss their needs as, as crime continues to change. Uh, as crime rates and severity continues to change, as different uh, drugs, unfortunately, come into this province and have to be dealt with. And what do you say to people who are in the Conception Bay North area who may be feeling unsafe, given what they're hearing about uh, instances of violent and serious crime? So, of course, if they're feeling unsafe, um, first thing to always do, and this is why I've said as well, we're so lucky to have two great police agencies in this province, the RCMP and the RNC. The first thing always to do is to call the police. The RNC as well, it's good for people to know, is that they base their um, decisions on where members go uh, very much heavily on data, and the data that they use is is service calls. Um, As you know, I'm sure as well, while we do allocate resources and funding to both police agencies in this province, police operational decisions are left to the police agencies themselves. 
They know where the resources need to go. They know where the crime is. They know how to allocate those resources to best serve the province and to best serve people uh, and to best ensure that people are safe in this province. Uh, So if people are feeling unsafe, if they have issues, if they're aware of issues, uh, I would encourage them to call the police agencies and their relevant uh, communities. That is Justice Minister John Hogan speaking with VOCM's Richard Duggan about concerns raised by uh, opposition justice critic Helen Conway Ottenheimer early earlier in the week. Well, the town of Grand Falls, Windsor is throwing its support behind a group of uh, cancer doctors in central Newfoundland who say they're ready to withdraw their services unless uh, some very specific action is taken to address some serious concerns they have. We're going to hear from the mayor of Grand Falls, Windsor, Barry Manuel, when we come back after the break. This is News Talk on VOCM. Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The Cabin Party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM. And we are back. Well, the town of Grand Falls, Windsor is supporting a group of internal medicine specialists based in central Newfoundland who say they will withdraw their services unless some specific and critical requests they've made to government are addressed. The doctors are calling for the recruitment of additional resources, including clerical staff, a full-time nurse, PCA, and nurse practitioner to help uh, them care for patients. The town of Grand Falls, Windsor says the additional staff, which are found in other cancer care clinics in the province, are fundamental to making sure that patients Patients in central Newfoundland have a fighting chance against cancer. Mayor Barry Manuel joins me now. Well, Barry Manuel, the uh, town of Grand Falls, Windsor, throwing its support behind a number of physicians in your area who, uh, internal specialists, who are uh, threatening to withdraw their services if uh, more attention is not given to cancer care in the region. What's going on? Yeah, well, first of all, I mean, it's uh, unfortunate that it's come to this, but it really speaks to the crisis that we're in here in the, this region when it comes to healthcare now for uh, several years. And we've been hearing from physicians and nurses and all health professionals, really, that uh, the difficulties are there and the challenges are endless. And it uh, comes down to patient care, you know. So in this situation, of course, we fully support these physicians Uh, in their stance and uh, you know when it comes to cancer care we want to ensure that we're getting equitable service here in Grand Falls, Windsor and surrounding areas and that's not uh, any more than we should be asking for in fairness when it comes to cancer care and all the clinics should be fully equipped and the supports need to be there for the physicians. So what happens if um, more attention is not you know, paid to this particular issue? Well, I mean, I I certainly hope it doesn't get to that, you know. Uh, I'd like to implore government to to listen to these physicians, you know, to meet with them and uh, and to provide all the support that they need. It's a tough time we know everywhere in healthcare now, not only here, and uh, we've been lobbying for years when it comes to obstetrical services and family care physicians, nurse vacancies, recruitment retention you name it you know from a municipal standpoint we've been really trying to uh, get behind this and again all we're looking for is uh, is fairness here but uh, the healthcare professionals and medical staff and citizens i mean we need action and and we need it now so uh, these people the physicians are people living in our communities you know they're not people who are standing up and, and whining or uh, say doing this for some reason that's not valid. I mean, this really tells a story of how frustrated 
these physicians are. They care tremendously about their patients. They give great care, as does all the staff, but the supports are not there as needed and as outlined in their uh, correspondence to government. They want to, to make sure that they're there so they can provide the most efficient, efficient and effective care. Barry, you've been a municipal leader in central Newfoundland for some time now, and you must have had uh, plenty of time to contemplate and think about, um, you know, the the difficulties that Central has had in recent years with recruitment and retention. Is there anything the town can do to help things along there? Well, yes, and we've and uh, most people would know in this area that we have a healthcare coalition that we initiated a couple of years ago now chaired by Cyril Farrell, and that group has been very uh, helpful and really diving into healthcare, ensuring that we are uh, recognized, identifying where there are gaps and what we can do to help fill them. And recruitment and retention, we've been hosting resident doctors, uh, prospective doctors, you know, making sure that they get the uh, tour around town, what's available and at their disposal to try to uh, encourage them. But ultimately, you know, it's not the municipality that's going to draw physicians. It's the uh, environment that they're working in. And for us in Grand Falls, Windsor and the Central Regional Hospital, we've been losing family doctors hand over fist now for, uh, for about two years. You know, we had... At one time, four or five years ago, we had 25 to 30 family physicians practicing in Grand Falls, Windsor. Now we're down to less than 10. So, you know, yes, there's a family care team, and we look forward to that. But it appears, uh, based on the intake of that, that capacity is not there in administration and other things to get the patients uh, uploaded so that they can get the care that they need. When you have hundreds of intake and thousands on waiting lists, then there's a, there's a problem, and uh, you need more support to do that. And that's this is just another example, I guess, of uh, of the trouble that we're having here in healthcare. And what about the reliance that we've seen in recent years on uh, travel nurses, particularly in Central Newfoundland? Yeah, I mean, I can't speak to that specifically. I know that government have been uh, investing a fair bit of money into nurses and traveling and recruitment stations and different parts of the world and travel nurses. I understand that they are uh, necessary, of course, or else they wouldn't be here to provide the care that we need. Uh, But, you know, a long-term solution, I don't believe, is travel nurses. It has to be uh, educating our own, encouraging our own, and uh, encouraging people from all around the world to come and practice medicine here and make the environment and the conditions uh, something that is attractive and uh, certainly comparable to other areas, which sometimes is an issue with Newfoundland and Labrador. We're just... uh, you know, a little bit below a lot of the other provinces and other places in the world when it comes to remuneration and the supports that are available. And because of that, of course, uh, we get the uh, people choosing other locations uh, many times. If you were sitting with uh, Premier Andrew Fury right now across the desk from him, what would you be telling him? Well, I would ask Premier Fury to discuss this issue immediately if he hasn't already and the health minister as well to discuss with these physicians directly what exactly the issues are and how they can come to a resolution and I would expect to be honest that Premier Fury is likely to do that so uh, we hope that that can happen immediately and that we can get this put behind us 
and these physicians can get the supports and services that they need here in order to give the very best care to people in central Newfoundland who deserve it. And, you know, care cannot be uh, based on geography. And we are in central Newfoundland and everywhere in the province need equitable services. And that's all we're asking for here. So I tell them, uh, please talk to the physicians and get this resolved. Barry Manuel, I do appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Thanks, Linda. Barry Manuel, of course, is the mayor of Grand Falls, Windsor, the town throwing its support behind a group of doctors who say they're going to withdraw their services if government doesn't act on a number of uh, key areas of concern for them when it comes to uh, providing the same level of cancer care in their region as is available in other parts of the province. Well, uh, we had a bit of uh, news this morning at 8.30 this morning. There was a uh, swearing in at Government House uh, very early in the morning. Uh, Not used to seeing that in the past. Uh, The province has new ACAD minister, Fred Hutton, sworn in as the new Minister of Housing. Minister Hutton and Premier Andrew Fury spoke with reporters, including VOCM's Brian Medora, at Government House this morning. Well, I think we've seen across the country, not just here in Newfoundland and Labrador, that housing has become... uh, a a top priority for governments across uh, the nation, and we're no different here. We know that uh, given the influx of immigration, which is a good and positive thing, and some of the struggles with the cost of living, that housing is taking on a new dynamic right now in the the provincial context and in the national context. uh, consequently, I felt it was appropriate uh, to give it its own, uh, uh, to give it its due attention with its own department and its own minister, just responsible uh, for housing and the housing corporation. What does this say about the current or the, the previous minister, Paul Pike? Uh, nothing. Almost confident, uh, confidence in Minister Pike. Uh, this is just uh, an expanding portfolio. I mean, his portfolio was massive. It's the old social services, children, seniors, <coughs> youth, disabilities community sector and housing on top of it. Uh, This is just purely a recognition of of what a priority this government is placing on housing moving forward. And uh, and, and that's simply it. So, and you've seen examples of that across the country and and carving this out as its own department. And by the way, it's not, it's a department that touches multiple, it's across government. So it does deserve uh, a due attention of a specific minister and a specific uh, portfolio. Why not keep Paul Pike uh, in the housing position and give Mr. now Minister Hutton the C- CCSD? Yes, yeah, CCSD. Yeah. Well, I mean that's a question that uh, I have I asked myself, and uh, this is what it, this is uh, where I think uh, picking cabinet is never easy. It's the toughest decision of any premier, and I'm sure of any prime minister, and I'm sure if you interviewed anyone, they would say the same. Uh, but these are the roles that I think are appropriately assigned right now. At what point did you decide you'd like uh, Minister Hutton to be in cabinet? Uh, well, you know, as you know, I've worked very closely with uh, with Minister Hutton uh, now for quite some time. I know his strengths, and they are many, and they are cross uh, cross sectors. His experience in the media, his experience talking to Newfoundlanders and Labradorians for really a generation, uh, lends himself uh, to. Uh, it will elevate the debate of cabinet, it will elevate the position of government, and it will allow us to communicate our vision and strategy to the people of the province in a more cohesive way. What are the, what are the, the I guess, 
What are your targets for, for Fred Hutton in this new role? What would you like to see him achieve? And can you tell us a little bit about the mandate that you've given him? Sure. We're still working on um, – I don't want to give away any budget items, of course, um, but I think the signal should be that uh, housing is a, is a top priority. Uh, the responsible development of housing units, affordable housing units – and as you've heard me say many times, it's not just affordable housing units, it's housing that's affordable. And uh, we'll, we'll, we will task Minister Hutton with, with that and look at uh, the position of Newfoundland and Labrador Housing Corporation and how we can uh, fulfill its role uh, within, the, the, within the provincial context. Minister Hutton, what are your priorities now with your new position? Uh, well, first of all, obviously, uh, thank you to the Premier for this honour uh, to, uh, to serve in his Cabinet. The priorities are obviously going to be getting to know the Department a little bit better. Obviously, in my previous role, I, I touched on just about every Department working closely with the Premier and knowing the files that he was, uh, he was touching and, and, you know, had knowledge of. Um, obviously, this has been a story that's been uh, prominent in the news over the last few months, not just here, but across Canada and around the world, really, for that matter. And, uh, it's obviously something that the Premier feels needs very, very close attention, which it has already gotten, but will get even closer attention now as a standalone uh, department. I'm looking forward to getting in, and getting in and meeting some of the people closer, talking to them, uh, and finding out exactly where we are, the, the stakeholders, the people, the interest groups that are uh, on the ground every day, working hard to try to you know find more affordable and better housing solutions for people and, and try to solve the, uh, the problem that are facing Newfoundlanders and Labradorians who, who are dealing with uh, housing issues. Do you feel the pressure on this file? Uh, not at all. No. Uh, I mean, obviously, yes. I mean, there, there is a little bit of pressure, obviously, but I'm, I'm confident that, uh, you know, sorry. Sorry. You, you got to get used to this side of the camera. Oh, okay. Uh, I'm, I'm confident that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm ready for this. Uh, I've chatted with the Premier a little bit over the last day or so about it, and uh, I'm, I'm really looking forward to the role. What are the stones throw from the tent encampment? It's just a yep. colonial building there. Stark reminder of the housing crisis in the province. So uh, how will you deal with that problem specifically? Well, every day, mm -hmm. uh, you know, since the, the tents have been erected there and in the other area, people from uh, Newfoundland and Labrador Health Services and from various departments of government and the RNC have been checking on folks each and every day, offering other solutions, other alternatives of, for living choices. Uh, that will continue. Uh, I'm keenly aware that it's there and it will be a sharp focus for me. Do you know uh, where the uh, airport in situation stands right now? Have you gotten that deeply into it yet? I have not, Brian, but my understanding is that there are already some people who are staying at the airport in, and uh, I was listening to uh, Mr. Paulson this morning on your radio station talking a little bit about that. Um, it is just one of many possible solutions for housing uh, for, for people in, in this province and in you know, more specifically the metro area. So my understanding is that some people are already there, but I'll get a better grasp of that after I'm brief today. So that's new Minister of Housing, uh, Fred Hutton and Premier Andrew Fury at uh, Government House this morning speaking with reporters, including the OCM's Brian Medora. Claudette! Linda! <laughs> <laughs> Who didn't have her headphones on? You're such a busy person over there. Um, any update on that wallet? Oh, no. Nobody called in. Oh. I'm sad because she called when she, you know, in the right time frame. She got home, placed a few calls, so she lost it. She believes that Halliday meets on 
Gower Street. Yes. Yeah. So we're hoping that if anybody is in that vicinity, if you have spotted a wallet, to please, her contact information would be in her wallet. Um, but she's really looking to get that back, and her last name is Martin. So if there are any good Samaritans listening and you found that wallet, please uh, do that good Samaritan thing and well, give her a call. Well, I hope we get a positive uh, update on that at some point through the course of the evening. Claudette, thank you very much. We'll be back tomorrow. Do join us then. Uh, thanks for listening, everyone. Have a great evening.